Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. Today, we are joined by Jose Palieri. He is a political investigations reporter at the Daily Beast. He previously did investigation work at Univision New York, CNN, and newspapers in South Florida. You can find him on Twitter at Jose underscore P-A-G-L-I-E-R-Y. Jose, thank you for passing judgment with us. Absolutely. Let's start with your latest story. And the headline is Court Screw Up Reveals Judge's Latest Mar-a-Lago Absurdity. I'd actually like to start just for listeners who might not be following the minute by minute with where are we in the Mar-a-Lago case? We know that the FBI searched the former president's home, that they found apparently documents that he should not have retained, some of them that had the markings of classified, some of them that had the markings of basically the most sensitive types of documents that uh, the government produces and retains. And we know there's been a lot of fighting about basically everything that happened since. And I'm hoping that you can give us a little bit of an update on what is that everything that has happened since fighting look like, maybe starting with this request for a special master. So where we are now is at a real decisive and busy time in this case, because we have several things happening simultaneously. Top of the list is that the FBI is actively investigating whether or not the former president illegally kept and mishandled classified records at his Oceanside estate in Florida, Mar-a-Lago. And meanwhile, we know that the director of national intelligence is conducting this damage assessment to see whether or not the fact that so many records, we're talking about over a hundred at this point that we know of, were kept there in a way that were so unsafe that perhaps the nation's security is at risk. And so they're doing a damage assessment and we'll go back to presumably Congress at some point to let them know what they've found. But what we have right now is that Trump and his lawyers are playing a delay game where they are trying to slow down the investigation as much as possible. And it's at this point, seems like it's inevitable conclusion, which would be an indictment of him for what is a provable crime. And to do that, they've engaged in several tactics. The main one being that they have asked a very Trump-friendly federal judge in South Florida to not just review documents herself and second-guess the DOJ and its seizure of these documents, but to get this third party, this special master, who at this point is a semi-retired judge in Brooklyn, to essentially second-guess the Justice Department and go one by one through several documents. (laughs) Several doesn't even capture it. At this point, it's 11,000 pages of material that could be either attorney-client privilege that the DOJ should not be reviewing, So any conversation that Trump has had with one of his like three dozen lawyers, or maybe applies to presidential executive privilege records that 
Trump would say he still retains some sort of say in some sort of ownership and that the FBI should have no access to. And then there's a third batch, which are his personal belongings, things like medical records and accounting records and things that I would definitely like to get into on this podcast, because there is some question as to how personal and relevant they actually are. But while this is happening, the FBI is conducting its investigation. And while they're playing ball with this special master to return some of these records to the former president, they also want to continue sorting through these confidential and classified records to see if they can prove whether or not the former president committed a crime. Jose, that was a really helpful overview. And with that, I'm actually hoping if we could pick up where you said, I'd love to get into this on the podcast. So basically there are, as I see it, kind of three buckets of documents that are potentially at issue for the special master review. One is the attorney-client privilege documents, which, as you mentioned, the Department of Justice taint team has already gone through those documents, and they have said that they used a basically a very generous view of what might potentially be covered and that they're not using those documents in their investigation. Second, there are these documents that are purportedly could be covered by executive privilege. I'd love to dive into that a little bit more because I think legally speaking, there's no way that that's possible. But you also mentioned these documents that may be personal and medical documents. This played a role in Judge Eileen Cannon's opinion. Could you remind us who is Judge Cannon? How did the case get to her because there was a magistrate judge that actually signed off on the search warrant here. And she's not that magistrate judge. And then after you remind us who she is, basically, why was there this mention of personal and medical documents? So Judge Cannon is a former assistant U.S. attorney in South Florida who mostly worked on appellate cases. She was born in Colombia to Cuban parents, and she was raised here as a Cuban-American. Now, I grew up in South Florida. I can tell you, you know, as someone who came from a Cuban-American household, we tend to be pretty conservative given our experience surviving a communist government in Cuba. So I'm sure she grew up with the same horror stories I did about a leftist dictator taking full control. And she's touched on some of that when referring to the way that her parents fled the island when she was confirmed by the Senate. And so she's this prosecutor in South Florida for years. And Apparently, she got plucked by Senator Marco Rubio as a potential candidate for the federal judiciary. She was in talks with the White House for most of what it seems like most of 2020. And then shortly after the election, she was confirmed. Trump, when he was president, put a ton of judges on the bench, but she was one of the last ones. She was in the the final sort of batch of judges that got put on the bench while he was president. And... I did a profile about how Trump has gone judge shopping for her in the past because it was pretty wild how Trump, when he filed this lawsuit against Hillary Clinton, a sort of revenge for 2016 and all of the Russiagate stuff, it was plainly obvious that he and his attorneys tried to get this judge to become the judge on this case. And the way they did that was by going out of their way to select Fort Pierce as the relevant court when they filed that lawsuit. 
What's interesting here is Fort Pierce, that courthouse is tiny. It's really far north. I mean, this is a huge district that stretches three different counties in South Florida. And I can tell you as somebody who's made the drive from one end to the other, it'll take you all day. Mar-a-Lago is in Palm Beach. They decided to go as far north as possible to a courthouse where there is only one judge, and that is Judge Cannon. This is a judge he appointed himself. And so they tried to get Judge Cannon to be the judge on this Hillary Clinton lawsuit. And the way the judge rotation system works on case assignments in South Florida, it actually ended up before another judge, Judge Middlebrooks, who actually called out Trump for trying to do this. I, I, re- I want to read this footnote in uh, an opinion he wrote in April that says, I note that plaintiff filed this lawsuit in the Fort Pierce division of this district where only one federal judge sits, Judge Eileen Cannon, who plaintiff appointed in 2020. Despite the odds, this case landed with me instead. And when plaintiff is a litigant before a judge that he himself appointed, he does not tend to advance these same sorts of bias concerns. And he's referring to how Trump's lawyers tried to say that Middlebrooks wouldn't be a fair judge because he was appointed by Bill Clinton back in the 90s. And so that was one time where Trump really tried to go out of his way to get Judge Cannon to oversee his case. But let's fast forward a little bit to this one, where after the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago on August 8th, I spoke to lots of lawyers in Trump world who were all utterly confused at why his legal team wasn't immediately trying to block access to this or, or claim some sort of privilege. And a full two weeks went by before they did. But then when they finally filed that lawsuit, they did it in a really screwy way. They went in person claiming that the electronic system couldn't work and filed it in what seems like West Palm Beach, but paid for it in Fort Lauderdale. I'll tell you honestly, I'm, I'm still trying to figure this out. It's, it's a subject of active reporting on my end. But the way the case rotation system works, somehow they got Judge Cannon that afternoon. And this was a home run for them because right from the get-go, she showed absolute sympathy for the president that appointed her. And we can point first to the oral arguments they had where she seemed really suspicious of the DOJ and the way they've handled this, extremely deferential to the idea that former President Trump should be treated with gloves because he's a former president. He should not be treated like any other American whose home was raided by law enforcement. And she was also extremely suspicious of the media, which is not something that we see expressed by a federal judge in open court, but she seemed very concerned that anything the DOJ has seized would somehow end up in our hands. Jose, that was such a helpful background into Judge Cannon, because I think we've been hearing just the top line for so long, which is she was nominated by the president, that she was confirmed after he lost the election, that she was very, I would say, open to his arguments, and that it certainly seems like he tried to find her because, again, there was already a judge in charge of all of this, a magistrate judge. But it's so helpful to think about the background of how he really tried to find her before, even. Well, there's one interesting point that I forgot to mention, which stood out to me right away when this case was filed, which is that they actually said on the paperwork that 
this lawsuit to block the FBI from reviewing these documents was not related to any other case in this district, which is a flat out lie. I mean, this is directly related to the FBI seizure. And that search warrant was approved by a magistrate judge in that very district, right? But they didn't want him. I mean, Trump had been criticizing that magistrate judge for weeks on Truth Social, his social media site. So he clearly did not want this case to remain with that magistrate judge. And I can tell you that just now, just before this call, I was looking through some notes from the clerk's office that are sort of difficult to find on Pacer, which notes that apparently, and this is news, they were actually notified by the clerk the day they filed this lawsuit that you know, this should probably stay with that magistrate judge. But if the parties can decline to have it transferred back to him silently, they don't have to say anything. So it looks like they received some sort of notification from the clerk that day in either West Palm Beach or in Fort Lauderdale that someone at the clerk's office knew that this should go back to that magistrate judge, but they didn't want that. And so it gets rotated to Judge Cannon, who, as I said, right from the get-go has been pretty differential to the former president. I mean, the oral arguments that day, it was surprising at how the judge restricted media access that day in the sense that reporters were allowed in the room, but apparently that courthouse, again, she's the only judge in that courthouse, the courthouse shut down the Wi-Fi that day so that no reporters who were credential to have electronic devices could report from her courtroom. So it, I guess it bought Trump a few hours time to make statements about what happened there. And then on September 6th came her order where she decided that Trump was suffering real harm by not getting these documents back. And because of the risk of having some of his very personal documents like medical records, that there should be a special master to slow down the FBI, not allow them to continue reviewing these classified documents, and the special master should determine what documents the government should keep. Now, the story that we just did at the Daily Beast this week takes a closer look at what happened just before she made that decision. Apparently, that taint team at the FBI filed a document to her six days earlier telling her that they wanted to give Trump back a huge cache of these documents. They said very clearly, a lot of these are personal records. We don't need them. And they included one, which was a letter that some of you out there might remember. There was this 2016 publicity stunt where Trump found this doctor in Manhattan to quickly type up a note saying that he was the healthiest individual ever elected to the presidency. I remember um, that. <laughs> some of us do. Um, and, and so that letter was among the records that the DOJ wanted to give back to Trump. Well, six days later, the judge cited this document as a quote unquote medical record that she was concerned might leak to the media and used that as one of many reasons to institute this special master citing this harm because he was being, quote, deprived of potentially significant personal documents. Well, at that point, now we know she already knew the Taint team wanted to give it back to her, but she totally mischaracterized it in her order. Now, there are two reasons we didn't know about this mischaracterization at the time. One is because 
the document that was filed by the FBI's taint team was actually filed under seal. So we didn't know about that at the time because they didn't want anyone to know that they had these records. They gave a detailed accounting of what documents they wanted to give back. They wouldn't even tell the FBI case agents who were working on this seizure what was going on there. And they certainly didn't want to tell Trump either. But the second reason we know about this now is because the court accidentally posted this sealed record earlier this week on the public docket. So, I mean, look, I was very careful in my story to not call this a mistake on their part. I don't know that it was a mistake. I don't know if there's some rogue clerk in that court that that made it public, but for whatever reason, there was some kind of screw up and this document got posted. So we got a little bit of insight into yet another way that this judge is going out of her way to go to bat for Trump. It, it really is remarkable. And again, I want to remind our listeners, we're talking with Jose Palieri and his new story just out, Court Screw-Up Reveals Judge's Latest Mar-a-Lago Absurdity. You can find it on the Daily Beast. And it really is an absurdity. I mean, I'm just sitting here, obviously listeners can't see, with my head in my hands, kind of shaking my head up and back, thinking this is not how the judicial system is supposed to work. And I think that our listeners are probably wondering that they're they've read about an appeal and they know that something has gone up to the 11th circuit and maybe even to the supreme court they're basically as far as i can see two separate appellate issues one deals with just this issue of classified documents and whether or not the special master judge deary can continue to review those classified documents and then it seems that there's a different appeal, the kind of broad appeal to Judge Cannon's ruling that is also working its way up to the 11th Circuit. Could you give us a, a little bit of clarity on where we are in terms of basically what what's happening next with respect to appeals in this case? And then I want to come back again to the investigation itself after that. So the appellate process here is sort of a tricky one. It can get complicated real quick. And even for me as a, as a reporter who pays close attention to this and I've covered courts in the past, the details really, really matter here. What the DOJ did immediately after Judge Cannon ordered there to be a special master was appeal her decision to stop them from reviewing these classified records. They did a very targeted appeal where they asked the 11th Circuit to give them back access to these classified records, noting the fact that there was real harm being done to the nation's security because Judge Cannon was clearly mistaken that she could stop the FBI from reviewing them, but then another segment of the executive branch, the director of national intelligence, could keep reviewing them because in her mind, she, she I guess in court, she explained that there was somehow some kind of separation between the two, when in reality, from the government's point of view, the national security damage assessment is absolutely tied to whether or not the former president committed a crime because the crime is worsened if there was actual damage from the fact that he kept these documents in an unsafe manner at Mar-a-Lago. And so the 11th Circuit handed the DOJ a temporary win early on saying that actually we're, we're staying a part of Judge Cannon's order where it wasn't a full reversal, but they went back and said, no, you, you can continue to review these documents while we consider this larger appeal about the appointment of a special master more broadly. And then they got a second minor victory recently 
when the 11th Circuit said they were going to expedite this appeal. So we're going to get some answers a lot sooner. But this also makes it a lot more complicated because now we've got the FBI still reviewing these classified records while Judge Deary, the special master in Brooklyn, is determining whether or not any of these 11,000 other documents that were seized can be kept from the DOJ under executive privilege or attorney-client privilege. And now we know that the DOJ actually wants to give a ton of those back, by the way. But all of Judge Deary's work might be for nothing if the 11th Circuit says, never mind, uh, there should not have been a special master at all. That entire process is scrapped. And so there's a ton of work being done on this in Brooklyn that might amount to absolutely nothing in a matter of weeks if the 11th Circuit jumps in and stops it. Now, if the 11th Circuit does not, then what will happen is that Judge Deary will come to some sort of conclusion as this independent referee between the DOJ and Trump, and then make these recommendations to Judge Cannon. Again, it ultimately goes back to Judge Cannon, where she will decide whether or not she accepts them, or as she keeps doing, uh, second-guessing people and going even further to help Trump out. And we saw this recently when Judge Deary let both parties know a few things. Uh, One is that he took this matter very seriously and he wanted to speed it up. So even though Judge Cannon gave him a deadline until Thanksgiving or so, he actually wanted to have this done before Halloween. And then uh, he also told the Trump lawyers that, look, you're claiming all this kind of privilege and you see outside of court, you seem to be arguing, your client seems to be arguing that he already declassified this stuff. Well, that's pretty relevant. So you've got to be making these arguments here or stop making these arguments. You can't hint at this in court. Do it formally and sign the documents that say so, swear to this. And that really cornered Trump's legal team because it's a put up or shut up moment. And Judge Cannon came in, swooped in out of nowhere and said, nope, never mind. Let's push back these deadlines to sometime in December. <laughs> and we can't corner Trump's attorneys and force them to answer these questions right now. It's way too early in the game. And so again, what might happen is that Judge Derry, who's a very serious judge, will conduct this review, it'll go back to Cannon, and then who knows what she'll say? Because she might decide that, well, no, we've got to be much more differential to Trump and grant him all of these executive privilege claims that, honestly, I mean, any any legal scholar is sort of confounded by, because we've got a former president waving expired credentials long after he's left the White House against a current president. It's unprecedented. It is unprecedented. And again, it's just remarkable to me how at every turn Judge Cannon has been, I will say, frankly, seemingly a more helpful part of the Trump team than many of his attorneys. And I certainly like to always emphasize that a judge is not defined solely by the president who appointed that judge. And we know that because the 11th Circuit, by a three-judge panel, including two judges appointed by the former president, President Trump, overturned part of her decision and said, no, you made a mistake and they send it back. But it is, again, it's just remarkable how helpful she has been while I would say at times ignoring the law. You did such a good job of explaining to us basically how this worked its way up to Judge Cannon. What's happening in terms of this, I'm envisioning an elevator of the appeals going basically up and down to the 11th Circuit, potentially even to the Supreme Court. 
But you mentioned something in the very beginning of our discussion where you said, you know, this investigation and you talked about whether it could lead to an indictment. And we kept moving, but could you focus on that for a moment? Because I think that's something listeners really want to hear about, which is what's really being investigated here? What are the potential federal crimes? We know there are three statutes that were listed in the search warrant for Mar-a-Lago. And then do you think an indictment is really likely in this case when it comes to a former president of the United States? It all, it's really going to come down to political will, whether or not Merrick Garland's DOJ has the strength to actually go after the former president for what are clearly blatant violations of the law. I mean, if they, if they can prove their case that the former president did indeed have classified records at Mar-a-Lago, if they were classified, the DOD oftentimes in the intel communities, they oftentimes play kind of funny with that term. There are a lot of classified records that are actually just that read like newspaper articles or things everybody knows about. There's a huge problem with overclassification in the intelligence community. But if these records are indeed classified, if they are as sensitive as the DOJ makes them out to be, and if Trump kept these with impunity, even after he was asked to return them several times, then I don't see how this is anything but a slam dunk case. It just comes down to whether or not the DOJ is willing to go after a former president for doing this. So when when we got more details on the Mar-a-Lago raid, we saw that the former president is being investigated on three different counts. One of them is putting the nation's security at risk. And that seems to be the one that's easiest to prove um, because, again, we know that they recovered classified documents there and Trump has yet to show any evidence that he declassified them other than saying, you know, hypothetically, if I think so, then it is, which I, of all the things Trump has said, I think this is the one we're going to be citing hundreds of years from now. (laughs) We're going to be quoting when someone can just think reality is different. So there's that one. But then there's another where there's a law that prohibits the destruction of government records, which is 18 USC 2071. And that one uh, directly goes to this this thing that federal prosecutors have claimed that they've recovered documents that were uh, somehow altered. Uh, the way they described it is, quote, certain pages of presidential records had been torn up. Um, now, that one's really interesting for two reasons. One is that we knew that Trump was tearing up all sorts of records when he was in the White House. But the thought that he would have done that to some presidential records that he should have turned over to the National Archives on his way out is fascinating because he should have known better. As several people have told me, including two of the nation's former archivists, these are not records that belong to this man. These records belong to you and me. They're part of our national history. We need them so that our grandchildren understand the time we lived in, so that when currently classified records become declassified, we understand a little better what the fight was with China and Iran and North Korea and Russia, so we can understand the shadow diplomacy battles that are going on around the world. He can't just tear these things up. They don't belong to him. But what's interesting about this particular charge is that Presumably, it's pretty easy to prove. You just take a record and show, look, it was torn up. It wasn't torn up before. He did it. It was in his possession. It was in his box at Mar-a-Lago. But this 
prevent someone from ever holding political office again in the United States. And there have been a lot of people who think that this particular charge, while it doesn't seem like as serious as putting the nation's security at risk, could be the thing that actually sticks to Trump the most because this could stop his comeback in 2024. Jose, I'm going to be the wet rag as I always am in this particular or the rain on the parade for some people and say, I know that's what the statute said, but my reading is that the Constitution actually is the only thing that dictates what the qualifications of the president or a senator or a member of Congress are. And I don't think that a statute can overcome that. It's certainly something that I think is tantalizing. And by its words, that's what it says. But I don't think it could be held to apply when the Constitution very specifically says, okay, here's what you need to do. You're a certain age. You were born here, um, et cetera. And it doesn't say, and you weren't convicted of this particular type of crime. But I, I think you're exactly right to highlight everything you did in terms of this ongoing investigation. And I want to emphasize what you said, which is that it's really, I believe, a political calculation. And in my personal view, in terms of whether or not an indictment is brought, the attorney general will have to explain to us why a case was not brought, if that's the decision. I think you used the term slam dunk. And I, again, want to remind our listeners that we've talked to Jose Polieri. He is an investigative reporter for the Daily Beast. And we've been talking about his latest piece, Court Screw-Up Reveals Judge's Latest Mar-a-Lago Absurdity. Jose, we didn't even have time to get to, because I know you're on deadline, your other pieces dealing with the New York Attorney General's investigation, um, Trump's suit where he's facing a sexual battery charge under a new survivor's law. I hope you'll come back and talk to us about that maybe at a moment when um, your editors aren't breathing down your neck and your readers <laughs> aren't waiting for the next post. I'm happy to do that. And there's there's a lot to talk about here because for years, people have been on the edge of their seat waiting for some Trump prosecution, and somehow he escapes it every single time. So just to touch on the cases you just mentioned, on the one end, right, people have said that this FBI investigation is probably the most serious investigation of Trump yet and the one that seems the most promising. But because that depends on political will, we won't know until the very end. While on the completely other end of the spectrum, these investigations in Fulton County, Georgia, and in the state of New York from two different prosecutors, uh, they have the political will. They're going after the former president. The question is going to be, of course, whether or not these local prosecutors can overcome this massive war chest that Trump has amassed. Because like it or not, Trump right now is in full control of the Republican Party. He does all the fundraising. People are going to him. He's got the sway. And so this, is, this isn't just going to be a potentially, as you mentioned, a constitutional fight about whether or not these charges can actually stick in the FBI case. This will also be a fight about money and about the future of, of power in this country. Oh my gosh, that was a very quick explanation of some really important pending cases. And as you said, really potentially threatened to subject the former president to, I think, very pressing 
legal exposure because there's the political will to bring those cases. So certainly we will be following them. I want to thank you for your excellent reporting and for spending so much time with us on a day when you are under deadline again. And I want to remind the listeners, you can find Jose on Twitter at Jose underscore P-A-G-L-I-E-R-Y. Jose, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks for the opportunity. I want to remind all of our listeners, please, of course, subscribe, rate, and review. Joe and I will be back. I know a lot of you have been missing Joe, myself included. Joe and I will be back with a little preview of the Supreme Court term. We know we gave you a little uh, amuse-bouche by talking about some of the cases dealing with discrimination, and we're going to run down all the big cases and be able to talk about Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's first few oral arguments and how she fared. So with that, we wish everybody a wonderful day and we'll talk to you soon.